Welcome to the Climate Capital Podcast, where we interview founders who are solving the most difficult and important decarbonization problems. Climate Capital, across our funds and our syndicate, is one of the most active funders of early stage climate tech globally. This episode is led by Jenny, the GP of Climate Capital's BioFund. And today we are delighted to interview Maddie Hall, the founder and CEO of Living Carbon. Welcome, Maddie. Great to have you today. Thanks so much, Jenny. Very happy to chat with you as well. Okay, get us started. Would you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about who you are, what brought you to Living Carbon? Of course. Um, yeah, so I'm Maddie. Um, as mentioned, the CEO and co-founder of Living Carbon. Um, grew up in Seattle, actually. So around a lot of trees, a lot of forestry all the time. Um, you know, would see Mount Rainier and the large swaths of timber and sustainable forestry that exists there. What led you to founding Living Carbon? Well, you know, I was actually, I was just talking to one of the members of our team about this, but um, I remember doing a project on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge when I was like in the fifth grade or something ridiculous. And I was just like shocked with how like how much we were playing with fire when it came to mm-hmm. some of the methane potential leakages with the with, um, in in that region and um, just how quickly things were accelerating. I think climate change has popped up as something that I've cared about personally for quite some time, um, whether it's that or seeing an inconvenient truth for the first time and being able to meet uh, Al Gore. But prior to Living Carbon, I was actually working um, at an AI research lab OpenAI, um, and was really focused on trying to see how can we take the learnings from building a frontier research lab that's both doing um, early stage research and large scale deployments and apply that to the space of synthetic biology, um, specifically within uh, carbon removal, etc. Um, yeah, and like, you know, happy to dive in more to that, but um, it seemed like there were so many people working on machine learning and AI and so much money going into the space, even in 2018. But in climate tech, there wasn't very much happening. Um, and so I first met uh, Sundeep actually at like a first round capital climate event um, with some folks that had been working in this space and sort of energy 1.0 um, and clean tech 1.0 really before this, this second uh, carbon removal boom. Is there anything unexpected about you that you would like to share with our listeners? I'm like a huge sci-fi fan. Like I love Battlestar Galactica and um, read a lot of fiction. Um, and used to belong to the San Francisco Amateur Astronomers Association. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, I think um, I'm really passionate about helping advance our species um, to become a multi-planetary um, as species and hopefully our ecosystem as well. Um, and I think the best way to do that is actually by learning how to heal our own planet before thinking about starting to create new ecosystems on different planets. So that's why I spend my time on carbon removal. I'm not sure if that's surprising, but that's what I got for you. I love that. Can you tell us about the origin of the name Living Carbon? I love the name, by the way. 
Thank you. Um, I think there's there's currently a debate about who had it first um, with the L carbon. There's now lower carbon. There's lithos carbon. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. Um, but I mean, living carbon. So our logo is both um, a, a tree with some branches that are opening up and then um, some other arrows that are pointing down. So it's this idea of focusing on not only improving the rate of carbon sequestration through technologies like photosynthesis enhancement, um, but also storing that carbon in biomass for a longer period of time, right? So slowing the rate of fungal decomposition through some of our other synthetic biology projects, um, whether that's our metals work on copper and nickel um, or some of our other projects around highly durable biopolymers so the name i don't know it just seemed like what was scalable right like the impetus behind the business was to be able to how could you it would be to be able to maximize the amount of carbon sequestered per acre and not have it be competitive with food storage and crop production and so to do that you really have to lean into biotech to allow for some of these marginal lands to become more productive if we could take a step back and talk about the problem you were trying to solve with living carbon, can you summarize that in a sentence or two on the problem you're trying to tackle at living carbon? Yeah, I mean, I think the problem we were trying to solve was essentially how might we demonstrate the ability to deploy a synthetic biology carbon removal solution to maximize the amount of carbon captured per acre squared, right? Um, or per acre. Mm-hmm. I guess like it's tricky because the problem is climate change, right? right. <laughs> um, but specifically, I think biological solutions are very scalable, right? Photosynthesis is sort of the cheapest way to convert sunlight to carbon. Um, but in many cases, and less so at the time, a lot of those projects were critiqued and somewhat justifiably so at just, um, you know, the questionable baseline math, as well as high rates of natural regeneration and limited durability. So for Living Carbon, we really wanted to set to figure out how can we use biotech tools um, to improve both the rate of carbon sequestration and extend the age of carbon being stored um, in more durable products like wood. Right. After all, nature has been doing this for millions of years already. And now you want to do it in a more scalable way and also in a way that is more controlled um, by the outcome that you we want to target for. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've been using a lot of these tools like CRISPR, gene editing, to develop either plants for mammals to consume, right? Um, or, you know, uh, gene therapies and other ways in which we can help uh, human longevity and human lifespan. Um, we haven't used those same tools and technologies to help our ecosystems. And I think the big learning around climate is that humans are, surprise, actually part of our ecosystem, right? And it will be hard for us to thrive if our planet is not thriving. So it's a really around reorienting those tools Mm. to be able to help our ecosystem and in turn help ourselves. So how do you go about using synthetic biology to solve climate change? Oh gosh, 
I mean, I think hopefully synthetic biology can remove some tons, right? But I don't mm. think there's anything that's going to be like the silver bullet, right? For us, we wanted to lean on the decades of research that had been done in crops. And so photosynthesis enhancement has been an area of interest within plant biology researchers for a really long time. In many cases, though, all the work was focused on crops. And in crop science, yield is king, right? So you're trying to maximize the yield that you're getting um, relative to the overall biomass. And so photosynthesis enhancement, which would just make the whole plant bigger, didn't really make sense. It was the wrong tech, there was a, a good technology, but for the wrong market. Carbon markets, on the, on the other hand, it is about biomass. And so we were basically taking, taking and understanding this, this body of work and figuring out a way to do things in trees um, and leaning on protocols that had been around for a really long time that focused on poplar engineering for um, biofuel production in the early 2010s. So we're really taking, like, I think developing a photosynthesis enhanced tree sounds really hard, right? It's really what hard, we're yeah. doing. It, 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 it does sound really hard. And it, 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 it is. But also, if you look at the state of the art in each of the different sub-industries is nowhere near as crazy as people think. And it's kind of mm -hmm. similar with AI, right? Like people would have said five years ago that like developing artificial general intelligence was crazy and who would ever think of it? And lo and behold, like here we are three, four years later and everyone's having this huge existential crisis. Yeah, seriously. And, and why trees and not other crops? What's special about trees that you think has the most potential to do what you want to accomplish? Yeah, so trees, a couple of reasons. One, um, they store carbon for longer in many cases. Crops are harvested annually and the top performing seed is highly controlled by very large businesses. So being able to break into this space would be very, very hard. Um, and I just think that there is like more opportunity within forest biotech. The space hasn't been explored that much. Um, and, you know, there are also large existing systems and organizations that we could tap to help us get to scale, right? So we already plant millions and millions of trees a year. So it's easy if we introduce, uh, you know, photosynthesis enhanced climate smart seedling. It's easy for us to work with some of these large scale growers and say, hey, can you produce, you know, X number of seedlings? If they're already producing, you know, 100 million trees a year, that's not, that's not like adding an additional 4 million trees isn't crazy. But it is crazy to think about, okay, can we build 40,000 DAC plants or something? Is this something that you wanted to focus on even in the early days of building Loving Carbon? Or was there a, an iterative process to help you get to this point? We'd love to hear the backstory of how you built living carbon to, to this day. Yeah, um, let's see. The initial trait species combination was something that we had to like demonstrate proof of concept in. Um, we then learned that it actually made more sense to do to like have the technology be developed in a slightly different way. So instead of using agrobacteria, we used another sort, another form of um, genetic engineering. And I think one of the things that we've learned is um, there's also a lot of international demand, but international demand is hard to capture without a gene edited product. 
So because our R&D cycles are so long and our product development cycles are so long, really what that meant is a quick follow-up with subsequent products after we had developed that from an R&D capability perspective um, and then going from there. So, um, you know, I think mostly we started out just as like three researchers in a lab and since then we've grown the team to uh, about 47 in total um, and almost like 30 R&D. So there's a lot of subsequent products that we're working on based off of the learnings that we've had, both around seeing how carbon markets have developed and how seeing like about what new R&D capabilities are out there and what is state of the art. We didn't want to push the envelope on too much to begin with. You mentioned a relatively long R&D cycle, which is something many deep tech startups have to face. How do you balance that with the constant pressure and demand to talk to customers, figure out product market fit, and create value for your company as you continue to build and wait for the R&D to be ready so that you can start deploying your products? I think there are a couple things. One is you have to have really strong inter-team communication, right? So you can know how to allocate resources. Um, you have to have multiple irons in the fire at all times and do as much in parallel as you possibly can, right? So um, when we submitted, for example, when we submitted our regulatory status reviews with USDA, um, it was a very short follow-up to submitting them for um, Populous Kinescence, which is our first photosynthesis-enhanced hybrid poplar, subsequent native poplars, loblolly pine, etc. So I think we also have a very good team that, um, and, and all of the project leaders at the company are very good at wearing both their research scientist hat, but also their like translational research hat and understanding, okay, like, what is this feedback loop that I have to be developing with the commercial team to be able to understand how I'm going to be deploying this, this product. But it's hard, right? Because like, it takes DuPont and other companies like five to seven years to develop a trait, uh, player combination and actually bring it to market. We will have done it in like, three and some change, which I think is quite impressive. And it's a tree. Um, and will be the first one that will be planted at large scale on the pilot carbon projects. Well, that is super exciting. Speaking of hard things, what are some of the hardest things that you have to overcome so far with building this company? Would you share a story with us? One hard thing that definitely caught me off guard is the complexity and and in-group mentality that a lot of the old school uh, carbon product developers have and a lot of the legacy nonprofits that act as gatekeepers to the space um, have, you know, where you have these methodologies, you have these um, standards that you might think you comply with, but they might wake up one morning and change their mind and say, actually, mm, we're going to interpret it this way. Right. So I think that has been a learning around just the complexity of carbon project development. I did not know one, like how hard it would be to actually just develop a carbon project, which is so annoying, right? Because I thought it would be doing the R&D, improving the efficiency of photosynthesis, getting like USDA clearance to plant the trees. Like none of the things that I thought were going to be the hardest part ended up being the hardest part. 
um, one thing that's helped with that is like bringing people on the team um, who have experience developing projects for other products. So it's finding people who have gone through the same process, but for a different product um, in sort of an industry setting. Because I think sometimes the nonprofit for-profit job can be challenging. A lot of the legacy carbon project folks um, do have that as a background. No shade to nonprofits, but it just the time horizons and the skill sets that we're looking for can be kind of different. Are there specific things about developing carbon projects that make them really hard? you tell us more? Yeah, I mean, you have to have a methodology. Um, and there are, within forestry, there are many different methodologies that already exist. And having a methodology, like, isn't the hard part, right? The hard part is actually being able to understand these 200-page PDF documents with any degree of confidence that your interpretation is correct. Um you know, and, and then a lot of that information and e- even getting these agencies to respond to you is challenging. Like most of them are understaffed. They might not like the role of the of the carbon project registries should be to help develop carbon projects that are high quality. Right. Um, and that really hasn't happened in the industry. In an ideal world, what would you hope the system to look like? to make life easier for companies like Living Carbon to thrive and succeed in a much shorter time span? I think, one, the market needs to mature, right? Federal procurement of carbon removal. That's already starting to happen. Hooray! Um, but it still needs to happen at a much larger scale. Two, have it look more like a traditional market where you have an auditor and you have a methodology that's reviewed by a third party, but there are no in-between, like, registries that dictate whether or not this methodology is approved that should be done at the audit level and then you should make all of your data publicly available on some sort of a ledger so it's outlined in a much more articulate way in the Reykjavik protocol which is something that we were fortunate to work on with about nine other carbon removal companies that puts together a supplier um, framework and principles that we're going to abide by in terms of what high quality looks like to us in a way that will actually allow for the market to scale, not just based off of the historical issues that have existed within carbon today. The joining forts with other companies that are mission aligned seem very smart. So together you have a stronger voice to help change the system from the ground up. Exactly. Because all of us right now, we're pretty small. Like we don't represent a ton of volume because mm-hmm. very few of the companies have actually developed and operated at scale yet but combined together we do represent a very large amount of meaningful volume over time and since we initially um drafted that there have been over 40 different carbon removal organizations and companies that have volunteered to participate um and are participating um and agreeing to implement these these practices within the next one to two years that's amazing to hear as you navigate these hard things, where have you personally grown the most as the CEO and founder? I mean, there are some obvious ones, right? Like you go from solving every problem yourself to not solving any problems yourself, except for the most important ones, right? Um, and that's definitely a learning curve of letting go when you bring other people on. Um, I think I've gotten much better at delegation. I kind of had to. 
there's also just a degree of um, there's like a confidence gap sometimes between female founders and male founders. Um, like I find that if I'm in a, a group of a few different founders, that like the female founders tend to be the one who are like taking notes in their in their like notebook and thinking through what they say before they say something, and it doesn't always happen the other way around. So just reminding myself that I'm actually the one that gets in my own way. Um, that's been like a lesson that I think is ongoing, right? Because it's easy to get stuck in your head and think about something too much as opposed to like shortening the time from idea to action, which is something I've been working on. Especially in a space where there are still not a lot of female founders as CEO building well-changing companies. Um, sometimes it can be hard to find the right role models or just the right group of peers to to join force and do things together. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think over the past year, I've really prioritized trying to build out more of that community for myself. Because starting a company in the middle of the pandemic, right? Like I did YC, I feel like I had had, you know, a lot of experience in Silicon Valley prior to starting the company. So, you know, I was in a strong position, but even then I felt kind of isolated during the pandemic. Um, the like group of founders that I would commute to Mountain View with, there's no more, you know? Mm. Um, but I've actually been really fortunate to have like a CEO peer group of folks that we meet like about every month to just talk about stuff in a facilitated way with a coach. That's awesome. That's been super great. Also just building out more of this community through the Reykjavik protocol is a good way to feel like you have, you have a sounding board. Right. But there are no female role models in this space that I feel like are particularly like who, who there are just so few. Right. Mm. I find that most of my, most of my role models are like fictional characters in books or TV shows. Maybe that's problematic and says that I like am slightly idealistic and delusional. I don't know. But <laughs> um, yeah, but it works out. It works out. They're inspirational, right? Um, they're, uh, you know, there's only one other blonde female founder of a moonshot company and it didn't go well for her. Uh, there are like two examples where it did not go well for them. And so you have to make sure that you're getting support, but not allowing other people to pattern match you into something that's negative too. Because one of the problems with having so few female founders is you get one instance where someone behaves badly and it ends up making it harder for the rest of us, right? Which is, I think, what happened with Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. It does happen, unfortunately. And I hope that would change. I'm out here trying and so are you. So that's the best we can do. Only founders or CEO up there, out there in the climate space that you look up to I think the work that Solugen has done is mm. really, really incredible. Um, so I'm a big fan of Solugen. Um, and, you know, I think Ginkgo has really led the way when it comes to like dispelling the anti-genetic engineering sentiment. Um, those are both like later stage companies that I think I'm like, big fans of. Earlier stage, I think there's, there's so much incredible work being done. Like, I just feel lucky to be included in a group of like such incredibly talented and amazing peers. But, you know, I think there are companies that have been around for longer, like um, Pachama 
and um, Running Tide charm that, you know, really started when Climate Tech started. I think we were in the early batch, but we weren't some of the like original, not not original, but like 2017, 2018. They've had to navigate this really rapidly changing market and they've all done so differently, but they've done so very well. So um, there's a lot that I get to learn every day by just being in the field. It, it takes a village for us to build up the whole ecosystem together and we all make it easier for those who are behind and after us. You're right. We're making it easier for the folks who come after us who want to build climate tech companies. And I think there's also some additional pressure to do something for the folks who came before us who didn't have the same opportunity, right? Like, I don't think my mom, my grandmother could, couldn't have, could not have started a company in the same way that I get to. Mm. Right. So there's the additional sense of responsibility that I, is very motivating to me. That's so well said. I can't agree more. Is there anything you would do differently if you were to build living carbon today and start over? Oh my gosh, a lot. But like, that's kind of part of it, you know? That's why being a second time founder is you don't make those mistakes again. It doesn't mean it's easy, but. I don't make those mistakes, some of the same mistakes again. I think the one for me that I always try to like instantiate now is just a super high bar for hiring. Mm. And if my gut says that, mm, I don't know if this is a fit or I'm not excited to send this offer letter to this person, don't hire them. Just don't. Mm. I think like it ends up not being a fit. And the early hires that you make play such a large role in culture. Um, and I think I would have like realized earlier that the biggest sources of um, emotion and I think challenges for any founder is generally that it's, it's a people. It's always people. Um, plants, while they can be divas, um, are much less complicated than people. I don't know if our R&D team would agree with that. But <laughs> I'm going to say it. So I think picking a market that wasn't evolving so quickly, right? Because what was desirable for a carbon project in 2018 to now has completely changed. So I think that was something that getting more feedback early on um, and understanding the trajectory of how it was going to go. I think we've had to adapt as a result, but that's something I probably would have spent more time on early on. And I also think that like, I really try to believe that everybody is genuine when they like want to learn something or might be writing an article about you. And um, I've had to learn, and also on the venture side too, I've had to learn in some cases that humans are relatively faulty in many ways, right? Um, and the, the incentives are where the money is at, right? Yeah. And so whether that's writing clickbaity pieces or um, that like aren't backed in, in scientific accuracy or, you know, giving a, a made up excuse as to why they're passing on the company or like when it's very, very clear that they're just afraid to say no right. and that like they just need to get better at that. But, you know, we're all deeply flawed. <laughs> and it takes experience to read between the words and understand the intention of certain actions. There's a saying that says, first-time founders focus on products, second-time founders focus on distribution. Do you agree, disagree? What do you think of it? I think it's probably true. I think like if you're developing a, 
a biotech, right? Like mm-hmm. you still have to have, be focused on product, but distribution matters a, lo- a lot more. Mm-hmm. That's why most, I feel like hardware and biotech companies fail, right? It's not because of the technology. It's because they didn't really understand the market. Right. And how do you go about building that muscles for living carbon, the distribution piece, when it's not necessarily the core strength of the science? Honestly, we've had to build like a whole new team to do that and like get expertise in that area. So our approach has in many cases been like a hire the network too. So getting people who have worked on, for example, we're planting a lot of mine land projects right now. Mm. Uh, getting folks that have worked within the mine land reclamation space for the past 30 years and having them get excited about living carbon and join our team. They're able to connect and know those audiences that we need for distribution um, in a much faster way than we would having to start from the ground up. So I think you have to know when to like build and buy and that also comes down to like hiring and how you think about your distribution going back to the the, the people ultimately mm-hmm. how you build your team yes what has been the most helpful piece of advice you received as a founder oh um it is there are going to be so many problems that feel like they're existential to the company that you're going to freak out about right mm-hmm. and a lot of that paranoia is healthy, but you're going to be able to overcome them. And actually, it's not as company-threatening as you think, right? And it's just about building that muscle of resilience more than anything else. And so much about being a founder and being successful is managing your own well-being, mm-hmm. right? Um, and not letting those high highs and low lows impact your ability to be productive. Because when you do that, like that's how you actually end up suffering and slowing down. Because that roller coaster is inevitable, especially in you know uh, plant engineering and carbon markets. There's nothing. There's no way around that. So I think learning to um, process the emotions and then take action quickly has been very helpful. But you know, not perfect. Totally. What do you like to do to to take care of yourself outside of beauty and loving carbon? Like I mentioned, I really like science fiction. So I read a lot. I try to read every day a little bit. Um, I like watercolors. I find painting very relaxing. I've really focused on sleep hygiene over the past year. Mm -hmm. So um, I feel like I've gotten much better at that. yeah, I spend time with my family and my friends and I also learn to say no, right? I think it's really easy to like, be like, okay, on my weekends, I'm just going to say yes to everything because I don't get to see people very much or like, I feel like I have to. And um, I think that it can result in very little time for restoration if you mm. are, um, wow, for like any sort of restorative afternoons or evenings. And if you're introverted like myself, um, it is tough when that happens. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. What would living carbon look like in the next five to 10 years? Oh, man. I really want us to be building the like biotech institution that will deploy um, not only photosynthesis enhanced trees, but 
a suite of different synthetic biology products um, into the carbon project development market, right? And also almost have the carbon projects that we're building be easily wrapped up and given to others who might be interested in doing the same thing. Well, sold. Um, it's a good investor podcast, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- th- that is something that we offer, right? So the combination of being the picks and shovels that allow for this market to scale within the nature-based space and to developing these first of a kind projects ourselves to be able to demonstrate, hey, this is possible and you can get large scale offtakes with synthetic biology products. Um, that's really where I want us to go. I'd also, I'm also really excited about some of our work um, on hyperaccumulation of metals. Um, so I think that there's a lot of potential there to not only capture a lot of carbon and store it for 200 plus years using just the power of the sun, but also restore and remediate land in the process. So that's what I'm excited about. I hope we will have planted tens of thousands of acres at that point um, of our seedlings and um, deployed even more with partners. So that's the hope, right? But we're out here living the dream one day at a time. One tree at a time is what people would say to me. (laughs) Well, I can't wait to see that future comes to fruition. And before we wrap, is there anything we or our audience can do to help you? We're about to launch a citizen science program. So if you're interested in um, planting a hundred or some of our trees to do a little mini trial in a different part of the United States, let us know. Um, We're also going to do like an ornamental launch um, in December for friends and family who are interested. And don't feed the hype that we don't need to do carbon removal and that carbon credits are bad because that will only hurt the industry. For those who are interested, what's the best way to, to reach out? Um, I'm just Maddie at livingcarbon.com. I'm medium at email, uh, so I'll do my best to respond. Thank you to everybody for listening today. If you'd like to learn more about our conversation or to get involved with the work that Climate Capital is doing, you can check out our website, climatecapital.co. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.